thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Obviously, hypersonics is a major area of national defense interest for the United States. It's an area the U.S. used to dominate. Stratlaunch is part of that bigger national strategy. We are offering hypersonic capabilities, and then we've got Rock, which is starting to show its potential to the world there. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. And this week we are between numbered episodes, but we don't want to leave you hanging. We have another fantastic interview by our very good friend and former U.S. Air Force flight test engineer, Ken Katz, who's back to talk about the interview before we get to it. How's it going there, Primetime? Oh, it's been great. It's been a really busy summer, but it's been a fun summer. How are you doing? <laughs> you sound tired. I guess it must have been a tough summer. So I'm good. Thanks for asking. Uh, what's kept you so busy that you're allowed to share? Oh, well, let's get started. Uh, in May, my oldest daughter graduated from law school. Congratulations. And Thank you. Thank you. And then I spent much of uh, May and June TDY in Phoenix. We're doing some testing on one of our company's products. It was a fascinating test program. I worked with some great people and we're doing something that's very important to the military. But what time of year did you say you were in Phoenix? Uh, the time when it's very hot. <laughs> Someone planned that poorly, but okay. That's the way it goes. Then uh, in July, I went to EAA AirVenture in Oshkosh as usual, and that's just incredible. It's great times with a lot of friends, old and new, nearly infinite amount of aviation stuff. I gave a talk about the history of the B-1. There were about 200 people there. Did two book signings. You got to go to Oshkosh, Jello. I know. And you know what, by the way, just to interject, I think I accidentally planned something next summer for that week. We'll have to take a look, but I've been wanting to do a houseboat trip forever. I used to do them as a kid, and I think we finally have one planned next year, but it might be during Oshkosh. We'll have to see. But you know that once you go, you're going every year thereafter because- Hey, that doesn't sound like a problem to me. Hold on. Did you have a wedding in there? Somewhere? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In August, my oldest daughter got married. So we had that adventure. And then my girlfriend and I have taken some really fun flying trips in the Mighty Piper Archer and the Cessna 182. We went to Montauk Point to the beach. We went to see Niagara Falls from the air. That was cool. Yeah, I bet. At work, I'm in a new position. I'm leading a team that's developing software for a very advanced flight control system. Ooh. So this is uh, cool stuff of the future. Was that a promotion that came with a pay raise? It's not really a promotion. It's just a lateral. So instead of supporting our existing products, I'm working on some of our new stuff. But it's something I want to do. I was going to cheap out and see if I could cut back on how much I pay you for these episodes. Oh, oh yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I'm also creating a series for authentic media about the history of the B-1 bomber. My approach is that I'm interviewing people who I did not interview for the book. So we're getting even more perspectives. 
Well, I'm glad you brought that up, by the way, because we have been playing some excerpts. I think they call them snapshots of those authentic media episodes and series. And I've only had one person that's like, you know what, you shouldn't just play part of it. And I said, that's kind of the point is we want you to go over there and sign up because a lot of podcasters, myself included, just put it all out there for free. And some people come along and support that. And big thanks to everyone who does. But authenticmedia.io, which is where you can find it on the internet, they took a different tact. They created something behind a paywall. You've got experts like Ken Katz and Crunch and a whole bunch of other guys that are doing some really cool stuff. So now we have a B1 series as well. I should go check that out. Yeah, it's neat. There's some great, I mean, I can't speak objectively about my stuff, but listening to some of the other stuff, it's fantastic. In fact, Sunshine and I are thinking about maybe collaborating on some stuff in 2024. So uh, stay tuned for that. Well, that'll be here before you know it, the rate we're going. Yeah, so. really. So what's doing in your life? Well, as you can see, you and I are recording this with video, but we're only going to play the audio. I've got a pretty decent beard going. Most of it's white, which is a little unsettling, but I am still in a food fight, as I call it, Ken, with the FAA over some VA disability benefits that I receive. And it wasn't completely neglect on, I don't know what to call it, but some people try to hide their VA disability. I just, I'd gotten my first physical for my FAA uh, ATP type stuff before I got out of the Navy. And then later when I received my VA disability adjudication, I just never knew or thought or whatever else to go back and put it in. And they want to know everything, Ken, even the things that you list, but are 0%. So I got one of those letters like, Hey, thanks for your service. And uh, you need to go do another physical, tell us everything. And then we'll tell you what we care about. And Apparently, there's only one thing they care about, which I'm working through. I've got an appointment coming up here in October, and I'll send that in, and we'll see if I'll have to shave before the end of the year. But the rate, the VA and the FAA work, Ken, I think I'm probably going to be available for other activities for a little while yet. I'm sorry to hear that. That's uh, Getting caught between two government bureaucracies cannot be a good thing. Well, I'm only off so far a month, and should I say this publicly? I mean, so far, it's been okay. <laughs> Of course, I'm getting paid to not fly. So at any rate, I've been filling the time. As the other listeners know, I spent three weeks on the road, including five days up at the mountains, just playing John Muir, which was great. And I've been trying to stockpile some interviews for the show. And I'm still working on my memoirs. On the subject of which, I really enjoyed reading a early draft of some of the chapters. And I know that I made about a million comments, but how's that coming along? slowly. There are times I cannot find the letters on the keyboard, figuratively speaking. And then there are other times it flows off and I just can't get it out fast enough. So right now I'm writing about when I was in the FRS, learning how to fly the F-18 and El Toro. That's flowing pretty easily because I just got done, Ken, writing about the first time I went supersonic and I was in a single seat F-18. It was my very first solo and I'm out over the ocean and I wrote it like, uh, okay, 0.97, 0.98, 0.99. My eyes were glued to the HUD. 1.0, 1.01. Wait, that's it? <laughs> I said something like, no disco lights, no confetti. Just the number kept increasing. So it was pretty anticlimactic. But at any rate, it was a memorable time. And that was 1996. The book's going to end in 2013. So I still have a lot of writing to do. Well, I look forward to reading that chapter. I got through when you got your wings of gold. Yes. And I, so I haven't seen the latest chapter. Well, the folks on Patreon get to enjoy a chapter a month if I'm on schedule. And I took September off from Patreon, so they didn't get anything that month. And 
hopefully I'll have this next chapter done soon. And I'll send you a copy as well, because as an established and esteemed author, can I trust your feedback? And I enjoy all those comments. Thank you. Cause it makes me think you had one in there about when I got winged that I had alluded to, I thought I might be disappointed that I would get something other than a fighter. And, and you wrote, I don't get it. You're about to get winged as a naval aviator. Why are you, I forget exactly the words you use. So. <laughs> I believe that what I said was about 98% of the people reading this who weren't military pilots would be dying to switch places with you and you're complaining <laughs> or worried about what airplane you'd get. I think that was roughly what I said. Well, everybody knows who's listening to this obviously knows how that worked out, but Hey, it was just the trepidation I had at the time, Ken. I mean, we got to make the book exciting, but I really was concerned. I mean, I've, I literally finished the advanced portion of jet training towards the bottom of my class. I, the wheels just fell off. I had a really rough time. And so I think I owe F-18s to a concept you're probably familiar with called quality spread. Well, it turned out, I guess, if based on your subsequent biography, you did pretty well in Hornets. I had my moments. So still debating what to call the memoir. I've got a working title I really like, but there's a part of it that concerns me a little and we'll keep that close to the chest for now. But yes, I'm trying to do a chapter a month, hoping to finish it by next year and get that published and out for everybody. And so, but at any rate, Ken, I think besides just bantering, we're on here to talk about an episode you decided to do with Strata Launch and their rock aircraft. Do I have that right? That's right. And for starters, we never really talk about rock as a definition. And I think I had this written down after we talked about it, but let's cover it here. It's ROC, isn't it? That's right. And is that an acronym or what is it? No, no. According to the Strato Launch website, and I had to look this up myself, here's the quote. Rock is the namesake of a legendary, enormous bird of prey said to be large enough to launch full-grown elephants. Well, that sounds about like rock. So according to ancient Arabian folklore, rock is known for carrying sailors to safety. Okay. <laughs> the listeners will soon learn how appropriate that is. Now, before we get to the interview, Ken, just tell me this one thing. Now, here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we've had aerial firefighting, racing jets, hurricane hunters, and a lot of ancillary different topics. What made you want to pursue this one? Well, rock is the largest airplane in the world. It has a unique configuration and characteristics. It's an exciting research mission on the leading edge of aerospace technology and particularly the military applications of that technology. So although it's a civilian airplane, it certainly is supporting what's fundamentally military research. And of course, it comes from that corner of the universe where we do a lot of flight testing up there in the Mojave Desert. So it's kind of my homeboys, admittedly uh, a few decades removed. So I just want to know more. Ken, can I say this politely? You're about as white as they get. To hear you say homeboys is pretty funny. <laughs> Without any further ado or any other insults, let's get straight to the interview, Ken. I know everyone's going to enjoy this. Here we go. What do you think is the largest airplane flying today? The Airbus A380? The C5 Galaxy? Nope. Think a lot bigger than that. Today, we're going to talk with retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Evan Thomas, call sign Ivan, about flying the truly ginormous Strato Launch Rock. Welcome, Colonel Thomas. Hi, Ken. 
Before we talk about rock, let's uh, introduce you, your background, your education, your experience. Uh, how'd you get into this business? Well, I guess I uh, started very young. I grew up in uh, Southern California, basically underneath the flight path of uh, Van Nuys Airport. So I was fascinated by airplanes from a young age. After high school, I was lucky enough to be admitted to uh, the Air Force Academy. So I went through the Air Force Academy, graduated from there with a degree in astronautical engineering, and then went off to pilot training, which was my uh, goal, and went through pilot training. I was lucky enough to uh, come out of there with an assignment to the F-16 and went through uh, F-16 training and then two operational tours flying the F-16, including uh, 52 combat missions in Operation Desert Storm. From there, I was selected to attend the Empire Test Pilot School, which is the uh, United Kingdom equivalent of the Air Force Test Pilot School. Went through there, came back to uh, Edwards Air Force Base to serve as an F-16 test pilot. Did a number of programs for the F-16 across a number of blocks. From there, went away, came back to uh, Edwards again, and this time uh, flew the F-16 as the, the ops officer of the 416th Flight Test Squadron, and then took command of the 411th Flight Test Squadron, which was the F-22 Test Squadron basically right in the spin-up to uh, declare the F-22 with initial operating capability. So it was a very busy time. Got to do a lot of great testing on the F-22. And from there, I uh, went to another uh, staff job and then finished off my Air Force career at Eglin Air Force Base as the vice commander of the 46th Test Wing down there. After retirement from the Air Force, I moved to Calspan Corporation and flew as an instructor at the Air Force Test Pilot School, flying their variable stability aircraft, both the uh, variable stability Learjet and the NF-16, now known as the uh, X-62 Vista aircraft. After a number of years there with uh, Calspan, I uh, was offered the opportunity to move over to uh, Scale Composites here at Mojave and move on to the uh, Strata Launch program was fortunate enough to uh, end up as project pilot and uh, pilot for the first flight of Rock. I've been on all the remaining flights. Uh, we transitioned to uh, the Strat Launch Company, and to date we've flown uh, 11 flights in the airplane, and uh, it's been a great ride. Wow, that's uh, interesting stuff. I've felt that my flight in the CalSpan Variable Stability Learjet is the single most educational flight I've had in my career. I learned just an immense amount on that flight. It's a great learning platform, probably the best at uh, test pilot school. That's why uh, all the test pilot schools uh, use that aircraft and uh, instructing in that was, was a great pleasure. I, I really did enjoy that. So as we start to talk about Rock and this really amazing aircraft that you've been flying, can you just give me an overall description of what it is and, and its configuration before we get into all the details? Right. So uh, it is an unusual airplane. It is a twin fuselage airplane. So two large fuselages and then a very uh, large straight wing that connects the two fuselages and goes out to the sides. That wing's 385 foot wingspan, so world's largest wingspan aircraft. We have six Pratt & Whitney 456 turbofan engines essentially taken off of uh, 747-400. Those 
engines are all outboard of the two fuselages. We have roughly 100 feet in between the two fuselages, so they're quite far separated from each other. Then you go back, we have uh, each fuselage has a uh, horizontal stabilizer, vertical stabilizer, and rudder and elevator surfaces uh, at the back. A very conventional airplane in terms of its flight controls in that most of the flight controls are, they're all hydraulically actuated because they're all too large for a human to, to move against the airflow. But the rudders and elevators and the inboard ailerons are all connected by mechanical physical cables to the cockpit. Then the outboard ailerons we have on a uh, basic direct control law fly-by-wire system connected to the cockpit as well. What is the weight of this airplane, full and empty? Empty, it's, it's basically right around uh, 530,000 pounds. The airplane was originally designed to a 1.3 million pound max takeoff weight. So that's what it was structurally designed for. However, we've been operating it significantly lighter because that original design point included a 500,000 pound rocket, basically the weight of two to three 737s fully loaded. So uh, we are operating the airplane in the 700 to 800,000 pound range for our takeoff weights. It still sounds though, the distance between the fuselages and the weight that you could carry quite a payload, like you could carry an F-22 and air launch it conceivably underneath it. We could carry far more than an F-22. Again, the airplane was built and the center wing is structurally sized for a 500,000 pound payload, which is one of the things that, that truly makes Brock unique from all other air launch platforms. We aren't dropping a payload that big right now, but most of the air launch platforms out there are either size or weight constrained that they just can't take anything larger or heavier, whereas we're just starting and we have a, a huge amount of potential for heavier and larger payloads. Now, you've alluded to a change in mission for Rock, and in fact, for strato launch, starting off with space launch and then moving into hypersonic research. And I'm, I'm recalling the previous episode that we had about hypersonic flight with Danny Millman. So could you talk about the history of strato launch and Rock and how it's evolved? Well, uh, so the project really began with Paul Allen and Bert Rutan. So Paul Allen wanted to uh, found a company that would provide uh, air launch uh, direct access to space. His company was going to build the rocket booster and provide uh, low cost delivery of satellites into orbit. And the aircraft strat launch being built by scaled composites was to serve as the carrier aircraft portion of that. So that, that's why where the 1.3 million uh, design weight and really that's the origin of its unique shape was to meet that mission need of carrying a very large rocket and then dropping a very large rocket in flight. After uh, Mr. Allen passed away, his estate supported the program through the first flight of Rock, but then uh, decided they were going to uh, go a different way. This is when uh, Stradlaunch essentially uh, rebirthed itself as a new company with a new mission. And that new mission is the hypersonic research development 
and the development of hypersonic uh, research capabilities in-house here at Strat Launch using ROC as our carrier aircraft. ROC doesn't look like a 747, but it has lots of bits and pieces of 747s in it. What is the connection between the 747 and ROC? And, and uh, a lot of times if people just do a Google search, of course, they'll come up with some of the old drawings of 247s glued together with a big wing connecting them, which really isn't what we looked like. But the heritage is that at the beginning of the project, for example, if you want to build an airplane that's going to have a hydraulic actuator that moves the rudder, designing your own actuator from scratch and doing all of the engineering work and testing it and proving it out that it's safe to fly is an enormous project just for one actuator. So it was far easier for scaled composites and uh, strat launch to try to reuse any parts they could. So two 747-400s were purchased and uh, salvaged out. So anything that would work on that we could use for uh, strat launch that was a legacy 747 part, we used. So the general uh, layout in the cabin is laid out very similar to a 747, although we, for other reasons, decided to go back towards a more 747 classic configuration with a flight engineer. We reused the 747 landing gear, the main gear, the nose gear. Our six engines are from the 747. Hydraulic actuators for the flight controls are from the 747. So any uh, component that we could readily transfer over and use in our aircraft, we did so simply for the speed, the lower cost, uh, the less technical risk of not having to develop a whole new part. Did scaled composites actually purchase some used 747s and cannibalize them, or did they buy new parts from that design? Yeah, they bought two 747-400 airframes, brought them here to Mojave, and then took them apart. So we have uh, some of those parts are uh, still live in rock and still fly today. You've mentioned that the aircraft has four Pratt & Whitney 4056 turbofan engines, which are in in the cells under the wings, I guess three under each wing. Are there also APUs on the aircraft? Yeah, so we have the, the six engines. We have space for an APU. However, at this time, that's not installed. We essentially uh, have had other priorities. And at this point, we can do our operation without an APU, but we certainly have that capability. We have the space uh, reserved in the aircraft for it. We even have an APU in case uh, we find that that we need it for our mission and it will support our operation. Where is the fuel stored in the aircraft? Uh, The number and location of tanks and how much fuel can you carry? Yeah, so we can carry uh, roughly a little over 240,000 pounds of fuel. The fuel is all in the wing, outboard of the fuselage, which seems a little unusual. You compare it to a normal airliner where you'd have some fuel typically in the fuselage and most of it out in in the wings, but it's all closer to the center. Here in Rock, our fuel is outboard on the wings because, again, we were envisioning we were going to be carrying a very heavy store on the center wing. So there really isn't much fuel storage room in that center wing because there is a lot of structure there. And the fuselages likewise don't carry uh, any fuel. So 
It's all uh, outboard of the fuselages up in the wings. We have the capability to move fuel on the left wing or the right wing between all the tanks and do cross feeding, but we can't move fuel fully from the left side to the right side. I want to correct something I said. I had said that there were uh, four engines, but no, of course, there's six engines on the right. other wing. It's, it's not a 747. It's a 747 and a half. That is correct. Yes. Now, in terms of the structure itself, is this a composite airplane, an aluminum airplane, uh, something else airplane, a mix? It is a mix, but it is predominantly a carbon composite airplane. So really the structural part of the airplane are five carbon composite spars that were the first main structure that went in on the airplane and that run roughly two-thirds of the length of the wing. And they are very far. If you're thinking a normal airplane spar, picture that in your mind and multiply it by about 10. They're very large, beefy structural components. And then uh, the rest of the wing is built around that. And then the fuselage is essentially were built hanging off of that wing until they were all defixtured. The fuselages are carbon composite. So the wing primarily is carbon composite. The fuselages, both of them are primarily carbon composite. Where we get a lot of uh, metallic structure is in the landing gear area. Of course, the landing gear from the 747, we're all metal. There's a lot of, you know, the beefy structure there to handle the, the loads of landing. So one of the challenges of this program was tying that very large metallic structure of the landing gear bays to the carbon composite of the rest of the fuselage. These wings are enormous, and it's somewhat challenging sometimes to make enormous composite structures because if you're going to bake them in an oven or something like that, are they continuous? Are these enormous spars continuous, or are they built up from smaller pieces? No, they are continuous using a, a unidirectional uh, carbon composite. So they are each, if I remember correctly, roughly 285 feet long. In fact, uh, our second hangar here at Strat Launch was specifically sized and built for the manufacture of those key spar elements. One word, wow. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I believe uh, I, they're not the, the largest composite structures ever built but they are the largest carbon composite aerospace pieces ever built. You mentioned the landing gear. Are they fixed or are they retractable? Oh, they're retractable. So uh, we're, we're just, I don't want to say just like a 747, but uh, we can retract uh, all our gear and close up. We have uh, one or two little spots where we didn't close up the uh, landing gear bays fully because we didn't need to. And uh, it was going to require some interesting engineering to try to get that last little spot closed up. Where's the cockpit? You've got two fuselages. So where, where's the cockpit? Right. So this is always a, uh, a popular question because, of course, we have windows as if people sit on both sides at the front of both fuselages. The crew is only in the right-hand fuselage. So we have two pilots and a flight engineer. We're all in the right fuselage. The left fuselage does have a pressurized cabin because certain of the electrical components and avionics equipment requires a pressurized environment. So that's why we have that on the left side. 
the reason uh, people always will say, well, why, uh, why are there windows over there then? And it simply was a matter of uh, expediency and going fast and keeping the price down. We had already designed the right-hand cabin and done the pressure testing and structural testing required for it. So rather than build a whole new different custom cabin for the left side, we just copied the design from the right over to the left. So the cockpit is pressurized, heated, cooled. You're not flying low enough that you could say just wear masks. Well, we do wear masks up to this point. We don't have to, but, but we do just because it's a, a unique developmental airplane. We've been discussing recently when we're going to stop doing that. But the, uh, the right side cabin, for first flight, it was not pressurized. But ever since then, we have a pressurized uh, cabin with, with heating and cooling and all that. Are you using uh, engine bleed air feeding into an air cycle machine and a heat exchanger perhaps taken from the 747 for your environmental control system? Well, we don't use a 747 pack system, but we have plenty of bleed air off of our six engines. And yes, everything on rock is uh, bigger and more than most airplanes. So we have three air cycle machines that we're running that bleed air through to provide the pressurization for both right cabin and the left cabin. Are there ejection seats in the aircraft? No, no ejection seats. However, we do have uh, capability to do an emergency bailout. Should that be required, we can jettison uh, the cabin door. At this time, for our higher risk missions, we always fly with uh, backpack parachutes on while we're flying. You've talked about having two pilots and a flight engineer. Is there also a launch control operator that's required when you're actually launching aircraft or research vehicles like Talon A off of the rock? Right. At this time, the, the flight engineer wears two hats and uh, essentially serves as the flight engineer and as the launch control officer for uh, the Talon A vehicle. So not only is the flight engineer running the rock systems, which are quite uh, robust with a lot of backups, for example, on uh, our first flight of the airplane, first flight ever, the only thing the flight engineer did was flip two switches on, flipped them off, and then back on before landing because the systems performed so well. So the flight engineer maintains operation of the rock systems, but then is also not necessarily controlling Talon, but has insight into all of Talon's operations. And the flight engineer can. Uh, if there were some abnormal uh, problem, can act to save Talon. The flight engineer can dump the propellants off of Talon if need be. We can electrically isolate Talon. We can basically control its functions from the flight engineer station. But for a Talon A mission, we're also relying on the backup we get from the mission control center. Since there are a lot of parameters to be watching on the Talon A, Really, it's not too bad when we're just flying in transit to the range. Not too much is happening. But in the five to 10 minutes before launch, things get quite busy. And that's when the control room is providing really essential backup for the flight engineer. Let's be watching all the parameters and make sure we're ready for a good launch. Is Rock capable of and legal for IFR flight? It is capable of it. At this point, we just haven't uh, spent the time to do the testing to uh, decide that we want to fly IFR. It has all the uh, required equipment. 
currently it's it's not ready to go take uh, across the Pacific or anything like that. For example, most airliners and most even uh, biz jets will have some form of a flight management system integrated into the airplane. We currently don't have a flight management system because at this time our mission doesn't need it. So there, there are items like that that if we were going to uh, push into uh, requiring an IFR capability, we'd be using routinely, we'd want to equip the aircraft with. Are they cockpit displays, communications, navigation, identification? Is that taken off of the 747 or is that uh, newer equipment? I would say it's uh, adapted from the 747. So for example, the 747 has what's called an ICAS, a center screen that displays both the engine health information for on a 747 for engines, and then also serves as the uh, master caution and warning center. So we, we mirrored that design. So we have our health information for six engines and then our master caution and warning information on a similar ICAST screen that is uh, centrally located. Each of the pilots has a, uh, a PFD. We have a center MFD for backup. But from there, we start diverging again. We don't have a uh, flight management system. We have similar radios, but some of the uh, you know more advanced uh, autopilot controls, things like that, we don't have. Instead of an autopilot, we have our launch panel for uh, controlling the launch of Talon. Uh, we also have a number of custom displays that we've installed that we can put signals from our instrumentation on that are critical, say we're doing envelope expansion, we can put uh, targeted displays of our angle of attack, our side slip, our uh, speed up and uh, slow down rate, things like that to help us flight test more effectively. You've talked previously about the flight controls being either mechanically signaled, hydraulically actuated, or uh, in the outboard uh, direct drive fly-by-wire to hydraulic actuators. Is there any kind of stability augmentation, yaw damper, anything like that? Or does the airplane have adequate flying qualities without any of that augmentation? The airplane actually is uh, all right in pitch. It's, it's got a few uh, little interesting characteristics to it, but it's uh, acceptable in pitch. In roll, it just rolls slowly. It has a lot of roll damping and it's frankly, not an airplane you really want to roll aggressively. In uh, directional control, on the first flight, we did discover that the airplane had more um, yaw due to roll, apparent adverse aileron yaw. It also has lower directional stability, dynamic stability, so Dutch roll, than most large-sized aircraft as well, although that's not an unusual characteristic for large aircraft. So we did install a uh, yaw damper and an aileron rudder interconnect that we uh, tailored to our uh, mission. So unlike most aircraft where, you know, if you're a 747 or a 787, you've got to have really good flying qualities. If you're landing in Hong Kong in, in a rainstorm, you've got to have good flying qualities at 40,000 feet. You've got to have good flying qualities landing somewhere really cold. So we were able to tailor what we needed our flying controls to essentially just our mission. So for that reason, we, we tailored our uh, yaw damper and our ARI to our launch point and the characteristics we wanted there. 
the roll flying quality sounded a little bit like a B-52. I know you're a fighter guy. Have you ever gotten to fly a B-52? I never got to fly a B-52, unfortunately. I would have loved to uh, have that opportunity. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like it. And that's not the easiest airplane in the world to fly. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we just have a lot of mass in the wings. It takes a little while to get going. And if you use large roll inputs, even with our ARI, you're going to start seeing some side slip. And then that becomes your dominant task of uh, chasing the side slip uh, when you were trying to roll the airplane. So it's best to just roll slowly. Let's talk about flying the airplane with a particular focus on unusual characteristics of, of the aircraft. You're based out of Mojave. Have you ever flown it out of any place other than Mojave? No, I mean, we've only done 11 flights. So the airplane's very much still at, at the beginning of its life, if you will. Even though, uh, you know, our 11th flight was to uh, drop our first uh, hypersonic, our safe separation uh, vehicle. So we've moved along very quickly through our envelope expansion. But at this point, yeah, we only operate at Mojave. It's a very large aircraft, quite a logistical footprint if we were to uh, go somewhere else. We also have a significant impact on other airfields operations, simply because the main wheels of the fuselages are 114 feet from the outer edge of one wheel to the outer edge of the other fuselage's uh, main gear. If you look at most taxiways at most airports, they're only 75 feet wide. So that limits uh, where we can go if we want to get off the runway quickly. Do you have television cameras on board to help you precisely taxi and make sure you don't run off the runway, or do you just use a lot of people around the aircraft? Well, we actually uh, tow the airplane out to the runway and back in from the runway. So the only taxiing we've ever done is straight ahead. But we do have a lot of cameras on the airplane for both situational awareness from the control room and for our uh, flight test of the Talon A vehicles. We have a set of high-speed cameras to uh, capture the separation dynamics. And then we also have a set of monitoring cameras that the crew can call up about 12 different views to look at things. It's been a great idea to put on the airplane. We certainly have the real estate for it and the weight penalty for us is negligible. So it's fantastic having all these cameras, not only for operation by the crew, there are a number of them that the control room can take control of and point and zoom so they can go look at different parts of the airplane if they have a concern or question or want to point them there for, uh, for data collection. Is the nose landing gear steerable? Yes. But if you imagine, uh, so we've got a right nose gear and a left nose gear that are roughly 110 feet apart. If you were to try to do a 90 degree turn, they're actually going through significantly different curves. So they would have to be angled differently. We did try to build a mechanical mechanism that would uh, do those corrections for us. And between the mechanical mechanism, the mechanical cables that we drive the nose wheel steering with, and some basic uh, physics of friction and preload and all that, it became impractical to, to try to do that. So they just steer at the same angle on command from the pilots. Do you use a tiller or the pedals to move that? The original design featured a tiller. 
However, we have uh, moved that now and we just use uh, rudder pedal steering. Okay, so we're, we're out on the runway. We've started the engines. We're ready to take off. What is the challenge of flying this airplane? You're not, you normally, when you're in an airplane, you're more or less on the center line. What's it like to go roaring down a runway when you're not on the center line? It's actually not bad. You get used to it. This is probably the, well, it is the most important thing to remember as pilot of the straddle launch is you never, ever, ever want to be anywhere near the center line. And uh, if you have that sort of habit pattern in your brain, you have to get rid of it because going towards the center line will look fine from the right fuselage, but it'll put the left fuselage off of the runway. So uh, we actually um, either used uh, expansion cracks on the right side to sight and keep a uh, sort of straight line uh, reference, or we, we worked with uh, the airport here to put uh, a black mark on there as well that we could use to reference that wasn't confusing for the other uh, operators here at the airport. Takeoff's actually pretty conventional. It just feels like you're in a normal airplane, although you're having to stay 50 feet off to the side. One of the interesting things about the airplane for us, the six engines were put on the airplane for that 1.3 million pound design requirement, but we weigh a lot less than 1.3 million pounds, usually in the 730 to 760,000 pound range now. So we have never done a full power takeoff in this airplane. In fact, we've never even been close to a full power takeoff. We take off with roughly about 60% of our thrust. So we have a lot of thrust in reserve in case we needed it. So we push up the power. Once we do put it up to that 60% thrust, it really jumps forward quite uh, aggressively, accelerates very nicely up to liftoff speed. And then uh, rotation and getting airborne is pretty conventional. Feels like a, a normal big plane. Well, if you're at about 730 to 760,000 pounds, 60% power, if I recall correctly, Mojave's at 2,400 feet MSL. It's a hot day to, as it usually is at Mojave. How much runway do you need? What speed do you rotate at? Yeah, we, uh, we typically use roughly 7,000 feet of the 12,500 foot runway here. We could use less if we wanted to use more power, but in aviation, especially in flight tests, as you know, everything's a trade-off. So if we were to use more thrust for takeoff, we'd have a shorter takeoff roll. But that really doesn't buy us anything. We've got a very significant amount of braking capability. Again, the airplane was designed with the braking capability for a 1.3 million pound takeoff and rejected takeoff to be able to stop on the Mojave runway. Even when we, we do our uh, heavyweight brake testing, we have never even come close to the caution area on the brakes. I mean, I will knock on wood, but we've never had a hot brake event. Even when we're doing multiple brake testing runs, we have very capable brakes. So there's really no reason for us to push up the power and be worried about the amount of runway we what we're balancing that against is, of course, any multi-engine aircraft that has offset thrust and all of our engines are significantly offset. You have to guard against what will happen if we lose one of the engines. 
And of course, the more power you put in, the worse the effect if you lose one of those outboard engines. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. So for us, this is all about managing risk to the level we need to have to execute our mission. And at this point, we can execute it just fine using 7,000 feet of runway and a lower takeoff power setting. What is your rotation speed? Uh, it's right around 130 knots. So the airplane uh, flies, takes off and lands significantly slower than a swept wing airliner. So it, in that sense, it starts feeling a lot more like a big jet powered glider. At 130 knots, you rotate and uh, really the sensation most conventional aircraft, you rotate and you, you just feel that I'm flying sort of in a climb angle away from the ground in rock, especially if you rotate quickly, it feels like you are on an elevator because you're suddenly generating so much lift that the predominant feel is if you are basically going more straight up than going forward. It's pretty wild. You had mentioned about the, as in any multi-engine airplane where you don't have centerline thrust, what if you lose an engine? If you lose an engine in rock, uh, what is your procedure? Do you retard, let's say you lose an outboard right engine. Do you retard the thrust setting on the outboard left engine or is it, do you purely handle that with rudder? Yeah, this is, this is the beauty of it. The, the pilot has uh, a couple different options based on uh, what we want to do. But even here at Mojave, where when we take off on runway 30, we're looking at a face full of uh, mountains, roughly uh, five to six miles off of the uh, departure end runway. But knock on wood, we have never actually lost an engine, but our, our simulator and our, our models are quite good for this. We can uh, lose one of the outboard engines. And frankly, the, the best thing is, of course, identify the uh, engine, confirm that. Uh, which engine we've lost. And then typically what we will do is direct the pilot not flying to pull back the corresponding engine on the other side to idle and just fly with four engines, which gives us more than enough thrust to continue to climb away and uh, get up to a safe altitude. It sounds like you have so much extra installed thrust that even if you lost two engines, you might not be in a huge amount of problem. Two engines on the same side. Honestly, no, we wouldn't really be. We can afford to pull back the engines on the right-hand side. If for whatever reason we're, we're in a position where obstacle clearance is a concern, yeah, we'll just push up, especially the inboards, 
again, we have all that extra margin to play with. And then uh, the runner is quite effective to counter uh, asymmetric thrust. So, yeah, we have power to climb and get out of uh, trouble if we need to, and then pull the power back and deal with whatever the problem is that would cause us to, to lose uh, two motors. Interesting thing, again, we've never uh, done this in flight, but someday, I imagine, we will push all six engines up to full power in flight. And when we do that, we will set the world record for the most thrust on an airborne aircraft. Each of the six engines produces 56,000 pounds of thrust. So multiply that by six, and we're at what, 336,000 pounds of thrust if we push them all up. We'll get there someday. What are your typical altitudes and airspeeds or Mach numbers for crews? Again, uh, for most of its uh, lifetime here, the airplane hasn't really been cruising anywhere. We climb up and do our uh, test points for envelope expansion. The airplane's designed to, to operate in the 30s to low 40s. We have not expanded the envelope there yet, but we have our, our plans ready to go when the time comes. So uh, we fly a little slower with our big straight wing. With the big straight wing, do you have a high L over D so it's kind of hard to come down? Yes. The airplane is very much a uh, giant glider in many uh, respects. We're up at uh, altitude and we pull all the power back. We get roughly about a 300 to 400 foot per minute descent. So it uh, definitely is not coming down anytime soon. We routinely use uh, either our flaps or even uh, extending the landing gear as a means to put a little more drag on the airplane to help in descent. Do you have spoilers? We do not have spoilers. Our uh, two position flaps, they're either retracted at zero degrees or they're extended at 70 degrees. So the flaps are not only high lift devices, they also function effectively as speed brakes. Are the uh, limits on the landing gear extension and the flap uh, extension such that you can use them, practically speaking, for additional drag devices? Yes, we have the uh, envelope for that. So currently, as, as we proved out our envelope, we can put out the landing gear or flaps at any speed or altitude that we're currently cleared for. In order to create additional drag to aid your descent, can you do a cross-controlled forward slip, or is that something that the structure doesn't like? Oh, the, the structure would handle it fine, but it would be, you wouldn't want to do it. Handling qualities wise, there's really no point. We've, of course, uh, cleared a side slip limit out for operational use of the airplane, but we don't like to operate near that side slip limit regularly and comparatively don't put that much drag on the airplane. It is not not like, say, you know, tail dragger 172 or something where you can see a definite positive effect of putting a, a lot of cross controls in and slipping the airplane. With us, it just causes you problems, but not really any significant drag benefit. So it's far better to just keep flying straight and put the flaps down. I'm going to guess that when you're approaching a landing that you'd much rather have a long straight in than do a typical closed pattern. Yes, uh, we've, we've never done an overhead pattern in this airplane. I don't expect we will ever do an overhead pattern in this airplane. 
Landing is, uh, is the most challenging aspect of flying the airplane. Of course, you have to land offset. Here in Mojave, we have a 200-foot-wide runway at Upwell. The wheels are 114 feet from one side to the other. So that gives us 46 or 43 feet to play with to either side. And of course, human beings tend to not want to get close to the edge. But if you cheat and go more towards the center of the runway, you're just getting the other fuselage closer to the edge. And it, you really can't effectively look while you're landing at where that other fuselage is. So you've got to actually train yourself to cheat a little closer to the edge. But one of the, uh, the primary challenges for us as the pilots for landing rock is that the, the main landing gear, we have three main gear that are aligned in a line. So the airplane really doesn't like to land in a crab because once those wheels hit the ground and, and friction takes effect, it's going to tend to want to point the airplane in the direction the wheels are, which is going to be towards the side of the runway, which is not really a, a great thing for the pilots. So structurally, it can handle it, but handling qualities wise, it makes things difficult. So we actually want to land with as close to zero crab angles we can. And that means we use a wing low landing method, which everyone, you know, Folks in general aviation are fully aware of, especially if they're tail dragger pilots. But we get a lot of comments on the internet asking why we're landing with the wings not level or crooked, because to the layman, they look and say, well, that looks different than I see an airliner land. But for us, that's how we want to land. So it's, it's very important to uh, land with the correct lateral offset, with the airplane aligned with the runway, and then uh, at a good pitch attitude. So you add all of those things up, plus uh, the cabin is uh, shaky. When we get the flaps down, we get a good amount of uh, vortex drag off the flaps that just excites the, the structural modes of the airplane. So for all those reasons, yes, we want a good, long, straight-in approach on this airplane. I liken it to... Yeah, you're not pulling a speedboat up to a dock. You are taking the super tanker into the Panama Canal. So you don't just pull up and plan to make a sharp corner and uh, make it work. You got to make a careful, deliberate approach. What is your crosswind component limit for wind? It's 15 knots is the design limit on the airplane. We could, you know, it's... Uh, Part of the art of coming up with uh, what limits are for the airplanes, if you were to tell me, hey, go out and land it today in a 20-knot crosswind, for example, when we do the simulators, we routinely, we go above 15 knots, we'll go 18, 20, 22 knots of crosswind. However, you don't leave yourself any margin for failures on top of that. So our crosswind limit has to be built to include, well, what happens if we lose an engine on the way home or have some sort of flight control malfunction? We need to ensure we have sufficient control margin to uh, still execute a safe landing with good handling qualities. Can you compare and contrast Rock with some other airplanes that you've flown? <laughs> it's actually hard to compare. Honestly, the, the best comparison is not going to mean much to a lot of your listeners, unless they happen to have flown the CalSpan Variable Stability Airplane. 
but it flies, it has similar characteristics to some of the demos we did there. One of the unusual things about the plane that, that I think catches people by surprise with the straight wing and its design, it is a very low dihedral, pretty much neutral dihedral airplane. So if we step on the rudder, the airplane's going to yaw, but it's really not going to roll at all. And if your plan is, hey, I want to roll the airplane with rudder, it's not going to work in this airplane. Got to use the ailerons to, uh, to roll. So that's, that's a little unusual. Probably the other, most of the interesting uh, characteristics of the airplane center around its Dutch roll. That is the, the interaction of roll and yaw. Again, so you step on the rudder, the airplane's just going to have a nice flat yaw. And then the Dutch roll sets in, and unlike most general aviation airplanes, there's virtually no roll component to it. It's what we call a snaky Dutch roll. It's just side to side. But the real interesting part is the period, the length of time it takes for the airplane to go to the right and the left and back to the center. Most conventional airplanes, even big airplanes, that's going to be in the six, eight second time frame which compares well with what's happening in the roll axis. But for us, the yaw period is over 20 seconds. So what that means is I put in a rudder input, say I want to straighten the airplane out and kill off the side slip. I put that rudder input, I go, great, I just did that. Now I'm going to fix my pitch or do something else. And when I look down 10 seconds later, the airplane's side slipping again because it's a very predominant mode of motion. So you'll think you've uh, suppressed it, and then it comes back again. And that's really the third uh, challenge we have when we're landing, is uh, trying to suppress this uh, side-to-side Dutch roll, the lateral offset, and then the uh, having to align the airplane with the runway. Now, what that's telling me is that in some ways, the most concerning thing about landing, I would think, in terms of wind, would not be the crosswind component, but the gust component, that this would be a very difficult airplane to land in a gusty crosswind. Yes. However, the rudder is still, I mean, we have four rudders. They are quite effective, even if the airplane is yawing. I can quickly do large corrections. So say a gust were to come in, they would yaw us off to the left and kick the nose left, I can very quickly pull the nose back to the right and make that big course correction and keep it from doing large oscillations. What's more difficult is controlling the fine oscillations if you don't have the yaw damper on, which we don't land with the yaw damper. And when you're in the landing phase, the pilot is so in the loop and making so many continuous corrections that that longer term 20 second period really doesn't matter at that point because you are never going 20 seconds without making some small rudder adjustment in this airplane on final when you're really trying to nail down the the alignment. I suspect that the airplane has a lot of ground effect because of its wing design. Is that correct? It's not as bad as, well, I mean, ground effect can be good or bad. It's not as significant a uh, factor as you might think with that great big wing, just because, yeah, we're, we're also a big plane. So 
it's hard for me to characterize because there's no obvious, you know, there's not a point where you go, oh, you know, we just entered ground effect. Things suddenly feel different here. It's a pretty gradual transition and it doesn't have a large apparent effect on the earth. Does rock have thrust reversers and or a drag chute? The engines do have thrust reversers. However, we have no need for them. So we keep them pinned. We've never uh, done the testing. We never really planned to use them. So uh, we just haven't used them at all. We have no drag chute. Again, with the, uh, the brakes, once we're down in our uh, four-point attitude, and get on the brakes. The brakes are very effective, both for stopping the airplane and for directional control on the runway. So there's, there's really no need for a drag chute. Much as it would be cool, but we'd need two handles because you'd need one on each fuselage. You could do it off one handle, of course, I'm joking, but it would be fun to have drag chutes. I always loved, uh, it was my favorite thing about the Jaguar over in England was popping the drag chute on it. The other thing is, if you had two drag chutes, now you have to deal with the failure mode of what if one of them deploys and the other one doesn't. Exactly. That's a problem we don't need. Let's talk about the mission of the aircraft, which is to be the mothership initially for Talon A and perhaps in the future for other aircraft. So I'd like to talk about a mission, either a captive carry mission and eventually a launch mission. What is the pre-flight required? Um, Obviously, you need to load the research vehicle on board. Is it fueled after it's loaded on board? Yes, it is. So we have a uh, a custom centerline pylon that actually is sort of like two big V's coming down from the center wing with what we call the mini wing in between them. Our engineering team really did a remarkable job designing the pylon and the adapter that talent goes on. Because, of course, this is always a challenging task is how do you put a store that you're going to drop up on the hooks, if you will, or into the the system and be doing all the connections while you're connecting it. And in this case, we were planning to have connections for uh, eventual liquid oxygen, for nitrogen, for pressurization, all of the electrical connections, all of the data connections. So there are a lot of uh, things that were going to be happening at the umbilical in between the mothership and the Talon A vehicle. So Rather than be trying to do all that while we're lifting the airplane, the engineering team said, well, we'll build this adapter that will come down off of the pylon. So we take it off and we do all the complex connections to Talon while we're down on the ground. And it's easy for the ground team to maneuver that that adapter, check all the umbilical connections, and then put it in place on top of Talon. Then now that those two are mated together, we wheel it over to the pylon, and the pylon actually has a couple winches built into it, and we just winch that thing up and then do the mechanical connections to tie it to the pylon. So it's a design that has worked very well for us, and the mating and demating activities uh, we're getting down to a science is really a great design, a great feature of the airplane. Is Talon being loaded with its propellants before being uploaded on the rock aircraft while it's uploaded on rock, or is it being supplied from tanks on board rock? Yeah, so our the mission we're going to fly for our first hypersonic launch coming up here shortly. We will do all of the, uh, the ground checks on Talon with it unfueled on the ground, we'll run it through a whole series of pre-flight checks. 
then we'll bring that adapter down, we'll mate it onto Talon, and then we'll mate both the adapter and the Talon up onto the pylon. At that point, we'll take the combined airplane outside, then we're going to put the uh, fuel and the liquid oxygen onto Talon while it's mated onto uh, the carrier aircraft. So it's fueled while it's mated up in the air. We do our final checks, do uh, engine checks, checks for this first flight of uh, the flight termination system. From there, very early on uh, the day of the mission, we'll put in the liquid oxygen into uh, Talon A. It's all carried inside Talon A at this point. Uh, we do have future growth capabilities to uh, carry some in the pylon and do an in-flight transfer. And then we uh, take off. We head out for the range where we're going to do the mission. So we'll cruise out there. Again, the flight engineer and the control room will be monitoring the Talon A health. And we'll get in to the range, check in with them, go out, do a cold pass, make sure everything looks good. And then we'll come back around for a uh, hot pass. We'll begin activating the, uh, the Talon systems, pressurize its uh, propellant tanks, and then uh, put it into a pre-drop sequence. And uh, everything looks good at the end of the pre-drop sequence. We uh, drop it off. And a few seconds later, the engine will light and off it's going to uh, go to the races. And it'll fly its uh, Mach Fly 5 Plus profile while we just turn away and uh, continue on our way at 170 knots. So it's going to take off out there in front of us. Is there a chase aircraft involved? Yeah, for, uh, for the upcoming uh, hypersonic launch, uh, when we fly with ROC, uh, for most of the, uh, the high-risk events, we have a safety chase with us. For the last uh, storage separation mission, where we dropped Talon for the first time off of ROC, we had a photo chase there as well, just to get some extra photo documentation. But of course, the photo chase won't be able to keep up with Talon. What kind of aircraft do you use as chase? It sounds like a traditional jet might be too fast. For safety chase, we actually use a Citation. Works well, you know, it's got a straight wing. It can fly as slow as we can. It can fly as fast as we can. It's got good endurance. For this last uh, safe separation mission, we used an L-39 for our photo chase because of the uh, good visibility we got off of the canopy. They were able to maneuver around Talon as it executed its uh, pre-programmed flight path and got some great footage for us. What is the suspension system? Is that pneumatic hooks, hydraulic hooks, uh, pyrotechnically actuated hooks? How is it carried and dropped? We are uh, pyrotechnic uh, bolts and nuts, so explosive bolts, essentially. But we have a redundant system. So uh, the release system is essentially two independent redundant release systems. Either one of those systems, so one fires the bolts, the other fires the nuts. If one of those systems goes, the Talon's going to, uh, to be released. And they are uh, timed quite tightly so that there's not a significant timing differential between them for failure modes. And uh, it's been a really nice system so far. Again, we, we did our safe separation recently, and the separation was very clean, really worked well. Is it dropped or is the Talon A actually pushed? Uh, no, it just, uh, we fire the bolts and it drops away. We do pre-position the flight controls to a position that'll give us a slight nose down there just to improve the safe separation characteristics. 
let's assume that you're you're coming around for your hot pass and you push the button and Chase says, nope, the vehicle didn't separate. And now you've got this vehicle of uncertain state and let's make just say for the sake of the scenario that you're not getting any indications on board that the vehicle's there, but Chase says, yes, the vehicle is there. And now you've got this vehicle in an uncertain, uncontrolled state with, uh, you know, full of propellant. What's the contingency procedures? Oh, we have a, a very uh, detailed on-store procedure for just, I mean, those contingencies. We have designed the system quite well. I don't expect to ever end up in that situation. But of course, out of uh, prudence and basic flight test discipline, we of course have a, a full test procedure that is going to uh, safe up the release system immediately, communicate the problem out to the world. And then we basically methodically using onboard instrumentation primarily and support from the control room as well. We will essentially step through the entire electronics of the release system, looking at each step, the signals that are going in and out of those components so that we can quite effectively determine whether the release system issued a drop command or not. Because of course, we've designed the system so that if Talon has some off nominal situation or one of the computers fails right as we're about ready to drop, it has interlocks. So we might push the release button, but if Talon determines it hasn't met the requirements for a drop, those interlocks won't clear and it won't drop. But we will be able to know this is the reason it didn't drop. Then either can we address that and clear it and come around for another pass, or are we done for the day and we got to go resolve this anomaly? So we have that contingency pretty nailed down. We practice it regularly in the sim with the control room team. If for whatever reason we did find this low probability, we end up with Talon still on the airplane, a hung store or retained, then we're going to uh, dump the propellants out of it and RTB to the appropriate spot. You know, if it's a hung store, consider diverting to a uh, safe location that will minimize overflight of populated areas. But if it was just uh, retained because of a computer failure, then uh, we'll again dump the propellants out and then uh, bring it back to Mohawk. Up to now, Rock has been kind of synonymous with Strato Launch, but there's a new addition to your fleet, which is the former Virgin Orbit Galaxy Girl. Yeah. So please tell us about the, the newest addition to your fleet. What's the history of it, the description? What capabilities does it provide in addition to what uh, ROC provides? Right. Well, it's a, a 747-400, previously known as Cosmic Girl when it was operating under Virgin Orbit and also Virgin Atlantic, which is where it first originated from. We've since uh, renamed it, although I'll defer to Kate. I don't know if we've uh, officially announced our, our proposed name or not yet. But it, it is going to uh, greatly expand our uh, capabilities for Strat Launch to support operations in multiple locations. That's one great advantage the 747 brings to us. It is significantly easier logistically to take a 747 somewhere to a, uh, a different location, remote location, and operate from there than it is with Rock. 
It also opens up a whole uh, section of the flight envelope, which uh, Rock has not gotten to yet, and honestly may have a little bit of difficulty in the higher speed, higher Mach, higher altitude corner. So it brings that whole section of a flight envelope open. And it's a very well-known, reliable, maintainable airplane, a huge amount of uh, maintenance and operational heritage. So it brings us a huge amount of flexibility to continue uh, as a second air launch platform to complement Rock. Thank you for the correction. I called it Galaxy Girl, but it's actually Cosmic Girl. So do you have any uh, final thoughts on flying Rock and the future of hypersonic flight research? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you sort of alluded to it there at the end. Uh, Stratlaunch, I think, is really well positioned. Obviously, hypersonics is a major area of national defense interest for the United States. Many of our uh, potential adversaries have moved well ahead in this area, and it's an area the U.S. used to dominate, hearkening back to the X-15 era. We have these capabilities, and, and we're playing catch-up now. And uh, Stratlaunch is part of that bigger national uh, strategy to reestablish a strong hypersonics, both uh, defensive, offensive, for reconnaissance, you, you name it. There are many reasons that hypersonics is important to the defense of the nation. And we are offering hypersonic capabilities that I think uh, are really unmatched. We're a small company, we're agile, we can do things quickly. We have uh, now two platforms, one uh, which is essentially uh, a well-known 747 can get out there, handle small research vehicles quite quickly. And then we've got uh, Rock, which is really a untapped potential that is really just, I think, starting to show its potential to the world there. And I'm a pilot, so I tend to, to uh, focus on our demand aircraft side. But really, the star of the show here at Stratolaunch is actually that we have designed from scratch and manufactured here in Mojave and now in test a hypersonic research vehicle that's unlike any others out there that is going to uh, very shortly be proving itself to the country here. And all that's happened in-house. It's really been a remarkable thing. It's one of the really cool things about working here working every day with this team of young engineers who's taken us uh, in a pretty short period from an idea on a single piece of paper to a fully built, tested vehicle that has a huge amount of capability. So if uh, there are some engineers who want to work on this program, or perhaps aircraft mechanics or people like that, are there opportunities posted on the Strato Launch website? Absolutely. If you're a person who is interested in hypersonics is interested in being on the cutting edge of aerospace and also being given a large amount of responsibility. This is one of the, the key elements of our culture is bringing in young, bright minds and setting them loose rather than burying them in bureaucracy. So we're a, a small company. We're agile. Kate's uh, reminding me to put in the plug that it's a uh, careers com. If you're interested, we are always looking for right, go make it happen people, because that's what fuels our team. Well, that's very cool. And uh, we're all excited to uh, follow your progress. I also want to say that if you've got a sign up list for Qualival flights on Rock, I'd like to get my name on that one. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very short list right now. Yes, unfortunately. So at Fighter Pilot Podcast, we like to finish up with asking our guests how they got their call sign. So how did you get your call sign of Ivan? Right. So, um, well, my, my real name is Evan, and uh, I was lucky enough. My first assignment was at Hahn Air Base in Germany before the wall fell. So back of the old, uh, you know, Gold War days, toe-to-toe with the Ruskies. And uh, I was brand-new lieutenant in country. I just had my uh, first flight that day. And uh, in Germany at that time, below 10,000 feet, your VFR and any military aircraft was fair game to be intercepted at any time. It was great training, kept you on your toes. So we've been doing some low-level flying, and then we popped up to do some instrument work. So now we're in an IFR environment, controlled environment. But here I've been having you know my IP tell me, oh, hey, there's someone, let's go after them. So we're now holding in the holding point for Han Air Base which was about a mile or two away from the holding point for Bitburg Air Base, which had F-15s. So we're in holding, and about 2,000 feet below us is an eagle in holding. And my IP jokingly says, well, let's go get him. So I go, okay. And I start rolling in to to go uh, roll in on the six of this eagle. And uh, of course, my instructor was like, no, no, no. And (laughs) so we broke that off and, and got back on our uh, instrument profile. So that Friday night, we do our standard uh, beer call in the squadron, and the instructor gets up to tell his 10% truth story about the dumb lieutenant who tried to attack an eagle out of holding, and he just totally mispronounced my name, said uh, Ivan or whatever his name is, and from that day on, that was my name. So it just stuck. Yeah, most people do something really, really dumb. I like to think that I only did something really dumb to get my uh, call sign, but it has stuck with me ever since. Ivan, that's a great story. Thank you so much for joining us on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Thanks, Ken. It was a pleasure. All right, Ken, as promised, you certainly delivered. That is one gigantic airplane, it sounds like. Big thanks to you and Ivan for taking the time to discuss the Stratolaunch Rock. And I guess I should mention, as much as we promoted that and everything they're doing and helping them find employees, that this is not necessarily a paid promotion for Stratolaunch. We just thought the airplane is cool. And after listening to that, I agree. Absolutely. It's neat to you know talk to people who are doing interesting stuff. Yeah, I agree with you. So I kept thinking to myself, okay, how on earth do they fly this? And I realized the paradigm that I was under is probably from my either Navy or airline experiences, which is an airplane can taxi around. It can go where it's told. It can go to different places. I get the feeling this airplane starts with a tow out to the runway. It takes off at the Mojave airport. It goes back to that airport, it shuts down and it gets towed back. I mean, it doesn't sound very well, I don't know what the right word is. Adaptable, flexible, it seems very specialized. And I think that's not limiting in a negative way, but it doesn't go to a lot of different airports. No, this is Mojave. It's the land of uh, weird one-off stuff. By the way, it's also the airport where I did my first solo back in 1986 as a uh, general aviation pilot. Yeah. Wow. So as I listened to this, I, you know, you, you took the dare I say, flight engineer approach. And I kept thinking, come on, Ken, ask him about flying the thing. And you got there. Thank you very much. But this just sounds like such 
an engineering marvel and a beast to fly. And it's a one of a kind. So they're sort of, I don't want to say making it up as they go, because that sounds careless, but certainly very specialized. And in the end, the idea is, correct me if I'm wrong here, that they want to be able to haul something up into the air where it can do, in a sense, a second part of what it might have to do on its own if it launched itself from the ground for reasons you and I talked about way back on the hypersonics that we even credited Top Gun Maverick with getting right, which is if this airplane or aircraft or whatever needs to get itself off the ground, it's going to be a lot more complex than if it can get a piggyback ride. And that's basically what Rock is there for. Sure. I think that there's also an interesting sort of broader thing about Rock, which is that once upon a time, something like Rock would have been a NASA or an Air Force project out of Edwards. And it's interesting that now we see private companies developing these capabilities so that they can sell services to the government or industry rather than the Air Force or NASA doing them itself. It's kind of like almost the venture capital model applied to aerospace development. So if that business model can accelerate the development of hypersonic flight in America, that's great because I don't want to see us number two in that field. I definitely want to see us number one. And it may be that the pure government approach is just too sluggish for us to stay on top of this. And we need a more privatized approach where the government is buying services. It's kind of like what SpaceX is doing for NASA. Ken, you didn't ask him. And of course, a gentleman wouldn't. But I can't help but wonder, at what point can they break even with something like this? I mean, the costs they must have incurred just in the design, construction, flight testing. I don't know if they've had a paying customer yet, but would a venture capitalist look at this and say, yeah, this is a good investment? I mean, now we're both just speculating, or at least that's the question I'm putting to you. But how does this pencil out? I've wondered the same thing. I just didn't ask because that wasn't what the interview was about. And probably I was talking to the wrong person. And I'm not sure because they're a privately held company whether they'd want to talk about that anyway. But certainly it's a concern because if a company can't maintain a profitable operation. It can't stay in business. So all the cool things that they're doing will continue. So I hope that they've got a good business model behind this very cool airplane and technology that they're doing. It may just take a while, but hopefully the payoff is worth it in the end. I listened. I was amazed. I actually did not come away with too many hanging chads, as we used to say after that one election. But what else is there? Or what maybe did you also think about when you listened to it again? Well, he talked about the origins of this, which is that it was originally meant to carry space launch vehicles, essentially be the first stage for a, a space launch vehicle. And now it's being used to carry a much smaller vehicle. So rock isn't being used to its full capability. It's not taking off at its maximum gross weight. I'm kind of curious what you could do with it if you actually used it to its full capability and how that might be useful. Well, and that now I would think could be an asset to visionaries and folks like Elon Musk out there that say, okay, this is a proven technology now. If we wanted to try something, we know we can use them perhaps. So I guess it'll be interesting to see what the future holds for them. Well, I certainly hope so because that will help make their business case and make this a viable thing that a lot of people will come along and come up with neat things that maybe you couldn't even think of at the beginning, but only when you have something like this around it, people start thinking, how can we use it? Now, I don't know how long it's been since you recorded that, but have they come up with a name for, I guess it was Cosmic Girl formerly? Not to my knowledge. Maybe they have, but I haven't heard that. 
Well, you did give them, everyone uh, listener-wise, a website if, for folks who might want a job. But just people who want to learn more, do you remember the uh, website off the top of your head for Stratolaunch? It's uh, probably not that hard to just internet search and find. But I think it's www.stratolaunch.com. There you go. S-T-R-A-T-O launch. Yes, dot com. Okay. Well, see, even a publicly educated fighter pilot can spell Stratolaunch. So, very good. All right, Ken, well, golly, what else are you working on? I mean, I'm always eager to hear your episodes and interviews and all the things you're doing. So anything coming down the pike? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I met some people at last year's Society of Flight Test Engineers Symposium who are on my list of people to interview. And uh, I still have to get those interviews done. In addition, I met some great people at Oshkosh, and they're psyched to be on Fighter Pilot Podcast. So I've got some more cool stuff lined up. In fact, the problem is, is I have this this day job that gets in the way of all my podcasting ah, yes. stuff. Unfortunately, and this is really tragic, someone who is on my list, a guy named Richard McSpadden, and I don't know if you've heard of Richard. No. Richard used to be the commander of the Thunderbirds. I'm thinking about 10 or 15 years ago. And Oh, I think I just saw this. Yeah, and he became the head of the uh, AOPA, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, Safety Institute. That's General Aviation Safety. And he's a guy who loves anything that flies, be it F-15s and F-16s or his beloved Piper Cub and everything in between. And he is a, unfortunately, as you're about to hear, was a fantastically just thoughtful guy who always brought in his interesting experiences, but never was like, oh, I'm a, you know, was the commander of the Thunderbirds and you're flying a little Piper Archer. He was fantastic about sort of weaving aviation as a whole. And I really wanted to have him as a podcast guest talking about aviation safety and about how technology affects safety and how there's this commonality, whether you're flying an F-15 or an F-16 or whether you're flying the mighty Piper Archer, how there's this commonality. And unfortunately, he died in a uh, airplane mishap yesterday up in Lake Placid, New York. There's no details other than that he was uh, flying with another pilot. And that's really tragic. Indeed. Well, we can dedicate this episode to him and his memory and his family. And people who drive cars are obviously subject to crashes and tragedy. And aviation is certainly no different. And so uh, that's unfortunate, Ken. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. But I trust you have other episodes to keep us all entertained down the road. And we've been doing every other Friday or so a uh, new numbered episode on our YouTube channel. And so on those in-between weeks, Ken, we're still looking for help from you and Flounder and whoever else wants to grab a microphone and record for the Fighter Pilot Podcast because we've got listeners out there that need to mow the lawn or commute or whatever it is they're doing. So uh, we got to keep them well stocked, you know? Looking forward to it. I'm also getting ready for the uh, Society of Flight Test Engineers International Symposium later this month. So I'm going to be presenting a technical paper that I've written. And the symposium is not only an important professional event, but it's also an opportunity to meet up with some old friends and make new ones. I guess it's like tailhook just for the flight test engineer set. Would it be rude if I said like a nerdy tailhook? Uh, like an awesome tail hook. No, oh, no, 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 no. It, yeah, yeah, you got it. No, it's it's a it's a really cool event. And well, uh, they probably wouldn't let me in. So oh, they would let you in. You'd have you'd actually really be interested on about the stuff that's there. Very good. All right. Well, and by this month, quote unquote, you do mean October 2023 for those who might be listening. Correct. Sometime later, but. All right. Well, Ken, I think then, uh, unless you've got anything else, we can pretty much wrap this one up. I really enjoyed, once again, your discussion with Ivan on the rock. 
hey, it was great to catch up. Look forward to uh, working on my next episode and talking with you soon. Well, me too. And I hope I speak for the listeners that say we do too, Ken. You bring a very interesting dynamic to this, the Fighter Pilot Podcast that we all know focuses on the aircraft, the weapon systems, but most importantly, the people. So that will do it for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Take care. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.